First Thessalonians 5:16 through 24. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for putting on flesh. You're the reason we can speak to our Father in heaven. You came down to this earth to clear a path for us. You defeated death. May you remind our church and our hearts that you have made us your own, that you have made us for your glory. Teach us from your word this morning. Amen. It's good to see you guys here. Am I on yet? It's not that important. It's good to see you guys. It's kind of, I mean, you know, I like when we have lots of people here, but it kind of reminds me of like the old days when we first started and there's like 10 of us. So, I mean, there's a lot more than 10 here today, but it's still good to see you guys. Thanks for being here this morning and worshiping with us. Um, so, disclaimer, just to, to get this out of the way, uh, we're going to be all over the Bible today. So, um, if you're like me and you know you're going to be hopping around a lot, I set some Bibles out over here if you want an actual physical copy in your hand, if you want one. If not, if you're fast enough to use your phone, feel free to do so, but we're going to be looking at a lot of different scripture this morning um, because I think the, the text kind of demands that of us this morning. Um, so, we're in our third Sunday in Advent uh, this morning, and um, we're attempting to, uh, by God's grace, uh, really try to celebrate the birth of Jesus as a church and kind of prepare ourselves to, to celebrate kind of everything that this time of year represents and, and what it should be kind of doing in our own hearts and our own minds, really, because, you know, we have this season where we can reflect on what God's done, then we're going to head into the new year, and, and what does everyone do every time when we head into the new year? They kind of hit a reset button. They're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and, and so the beautiful thing about Advent is it becomes an opportunity for us to kind of reflect and get our hearts and our minds uh, in the right place before we start thinking about what does that reset button look like about six days later, and so um, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when, when we're thinking about Advent, you know, and, and we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, it's not just a birthday party for, for Jesus, although my aunt used to throw those for us. I, I, I mean, I remember being like a little kid, and I'm like, yes, it's Christmas Eve, and I get cake, you know, and she'd get this big cake that said, happy birthday, Jesus, on it, and we were all excited, um, but that Advent, by kind of its very definition, is this idea of coming and being prepared for that. And it was a season historically for the church to reflect on the coming of God, but also for the church over the last couple thousand years to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. And it really, in reality, over the course of time, Advent has become a time for the church to rejoice in what God has done and what God is going to do. And so... As you guys have been here over the last couple weeks, you've probably seen that theme in the text over the last two weeks, and you'll see it again this morning, right? That there's this idea of rejoicing in what God has done and experiencing his presence in a, in a way that might lead us to worship, right? So, you know, if you remember two weeks ago when we were looking at Isaiah, right, we saw that Isaiah was crying out for the felt presence of God to move in Israel once again, right? And he, he cried out in this huge prayer, right? And it started with a reflection, reflecting on what God had done in the past for Israel. Then it moved to him requesting that God might move again and begging for his presence to be made manifest again in Israel. And then lastly, right, towards the end, he, he rested in the promises that God had given them, right? He just sat back and he said, I know what God has done, I know what God can do, and I believe that God will do it, right? And so we kind of talked about how prayer in this season for us can, can be structured in this way that we, we reflect, request, and then rest in what God has done, trusting that he'll move, right? And then last week we looked at Psalm 85, and it was a psalm by the sons of Korah. And what we really saw is that they were just simply rejoicing in all that God had done. 
rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in his work, rejoicing in who he is, right? And then lastly, right, we saw that the sons of Korah, right, they longed for revival to return to Israel. That, and then we talked about how for us that we long for God to bring revival in our day, right? In our, in our church, in our city, in our state, in our country, and in this world. That a revival starts with God's presence in us. And then that indwelling of God's presence being made manifest before others and the beauty of God being put on display. And so we've had this overall kind of theme of God's presence and rejoicing in that over the last two weeks. And so this morning, right, we get to 1 Thessalonians 5. And as Joel read that, you're probably wondering, how in the world are we getting God's presence and rejoicing in that out of everything that Paul is saying here to the church at Thessalonica? And I would say this. If you understand what Paul is kind of leaving as a benediction to the church at Thessalonica here, here's what he's saying. He's like, if you have experienced the presence of God and your hope is in Christ, then I want to encourage you to move forward in the things that I'm talking about because that will allow you to more freely and more passionately enjoy the presence of God in your life. And so... What we're going to process this morning is kind of this idea is in light of what Christ has done, in light of Jesus entering into our our world and putting on flesh, how can we be encouraged as disciples of Christ to walk forward in that presence? What does God want of us and what should we want? Most of all, right, we might answer this question, how might we walk in God's presence so that we might enjoy and honor Him? So, disclaimer. This morning's text is going to have a lot of commands. As a matter of fact, you're going to see eight of them. There's going to be eight kind of commands or charges to us as the church on how we should respond. So here's, here's what I would like you to do, right, as we're kind of processing through this. One, um, make sure that you're taking time to reflect and ask how you might grow in these different areas that, that God is pointing out to us here in the text. That there, there are going to be things here that when you see them, you're going to be like, mm, I, I see that being manifested in my life in a way that is encouraging, or maybe I don't. Okay, so I want you to think, think through that. And then, then the second thing I would say is wait until the end, right, because the last two verses are going to give great hope. They're still going to give great hope and remind us of our neediness for God. And so the eight things that Paul points out to enjoying God's presence, right, that's kind of what we're going to see starting in verse 16, okay? And so I'm going to work through this verse by verse because the way that Paul kind of structures this section is he gives a a different command or charge in each verse, okay? So starting in verse 16, excuse me, he says, rejoice always, right? Fairly simple, right? Um, the, The Greek there actually for rejoice always has this idea of it being a continuous action with just the way that you're living your life. So Another way to translate that would be at all times be rejoicing. So it's like, you know, if you're taking out the trash, rejoice. If you're hanging out at church with friends, rejoice, right? If you're cleaning a, a child's dirty diaper, rejoice, right? Like we get, at, at all times you should be rejoicing. And, and this is a consistent theme uh, over the last few weeks of what we've been seeing in the scripture, that if we've been experiencing the presence of God, right, we'll be rejoicing because we, we know him, right? We're, we're seeing what he's done and we're enjoying that. And, and, and this is something that we need to remember, that the presence of God, if we're experiencing it, causes people to rejoice. That if, that if you're really experiencing the presence of God, you will rejoice because you will be overwhelmed by who God is. You know, it's like one of those things where if you can't experience the presence of God and not respond in fear and worship. Now, that, that response of fear may be a different kind of fear. If you, if you think back to, to when Jesus went from town to town, right, when Jesus would perform miracles, there were certain towns where they, where they would fall on the ground and worship him. And then there was the one town, right, where he cast the, the demon out of the man and sent him into the pigs. They didn't want his presence there. They feared it, right? But either way, that's, if you think about it, that still demands worship. 
that they feared him, they feared his power, they knew who he was, and although they did not want him and they rejected him as Lord and Christ, they still worshipped him because they recognized who he was and they begged him to leave their region. Right? And so to experience the presence of God, especially as a disciple of Christ, is to rejoice. To rejoice in who he is and what he has done. Last week I talked about how, how wonderful would it be if Christians were really as happy as they were supposed to be. Right? Like how, like how great would that be? If, if we as followers of Christ really lived out right, what we see in the scriptures, what we see God's people doing, right? How, how different would our churches look? How different would our cities look? How, how different would our country look? If Christians were the pace setters of joy and, and were so satisfied in the presence of Christ that they experienced this level of joy and satisfaction, a, a genuine appreciation and excitement for, for this side of eternity, how attractive would that be to the world around us? Joyful Christians are one of the best tools that God can use in evangelism, especially in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things not going perfectly. If you think about it right, what it, the, the common kind of worldview that most of us, at least in the United States, have is this idea of the American dream. Right? It's, the, it's the kind of consistent thing we're taught, right? That if you work hard enough, if you learn hard enough, you'll, you'll make enough money, you'll be able to, to make it through life, maybe you'll be able to retire well and enjoy life. That's kind of our thing. And when things kind of start encroaching upon that, right, it starts robbing us of joy because that's where we start finding our satisfaction. We find our satisfaction in the temporary circumstances that we find ourselves in. And a great great evangelistic tool for the gospel is Christians who in the midst of suffering are joyful because of who they know they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. Now, one of the questions I kind of ask myself, right, because, you know, this is simple. He says rejoice always. But the reality is, is this probably isn't the case for most of us, right, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. And we can be honest with ourselves, church. This probably isn't the case for most of us most of the time. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the interest of being transparent and honest, I, I leave tomorrow morning to go to Virginia. I am not rejoicing. I'm not excited to get on a plane. I'm not excited to travel with my two young children. I'm not excited to be around certain family members. <laughs> Thank you, Mario. <laughs> I, I am not excited to be cold. <laughs> like, there are things that I'm excited about and there are things that I'm actually dreading. But if you notice, right, between not wanting to have to drive around and deal with family drama and be cold, right, everything that I'm mentioning that I'm dreading or I'm upset about is, is tied to temporary circumstances, which are then tied to what I have perceived as what I need or what I want. It's all about my comfort. Every one of those things that I've listed there is tied directly to my own heart and the things that I want. But if I understand this verse properly and what Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica here, nothing should rob me of my joy. Like, I, I shouldn't go into this trip dreading having to go. Right? I should be like, well, I'm not particularly pumped about it, but God's going to do something while we're there. God's going to make something happen. Maybe God finally moves in my crazy cousin's life and I, and I get the opportunity to share the gospel with him. Maybe God is going to draw my family to a deeper understanding of him. Or maybe it is going to be a terrible trip and we will, because of suffering, find more joy in Christ than in the comforts of this world. But that I can know because of the promises of God and the presence that he manifests here, that I can rejoice always because of who he is. Now this doesn't mean, right, right, because to lack joy is to sin if we understand this verse properly. But this doesn't mean that you have to be happy even in terrible circumstances. That's not what Paul is asking us to do here, right? He's, 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 he is saying, though, that no event in our lives should be able to rob us of our final joy in Christ. That, that not cancer, not death, not loss of a job, 
right? Not getting what you want for Christmas, whatever it may be, that should not be able to rob you of your final joy. But it does not mean that you, you have to be happy even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Otherwise, right, throw Romans chapter 12, verse 15 up there for me. Right? Otherwise, this verse would make no sense. Right? Look at what Paul says in Romans 12. Right? He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? That there is an empathetic side to walking through life with people, but that ultimately we're pushing people towards the knowledge of knowing who God is in their life so that our joy is not circumstantial. That we empathize, but we aren't robbed of joy. Now, let me, let me say this. Number one, right, I think that many of us struggle to rejoice in all circumstances because we rob ourselves of joy. No, no, as Matt Chandler says, who's one of my favorite pastors to listen to, I've been listening to him for over a decade now, right? I steal this line from him. No one robs you of more joy and happiness than you. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true, right? That no one chooses to deny God and sin and therefore rob yourself of joy for you. I'm not saying that some of you guys may not experience the sin of others towards you, that's very much a, an experience we all have in this life. But that the primary, right, person of guilt for robbing joy from your life is you. Because you are in control over whether you choose to walk in obedience and joyfulness towards Christ or not. No matter what your circumstances are. And so we consistently rob ourselves of joy through our sinfulness, through our selfishness, and our failure and lack of trust in Christ, right? I can tell you right now, in some of my darkest seasons as a follower of Jesus, they've been directly tied to my own sinfulness and my own selfishness, and my own desire to seek my own glory and my own will outside of the will of God for me in Christ. And I... And, and, and some of us are sitting here this morning, I know, right? Because some of you guys have had tougher lives than me. You've walked different routes than me. You're like, well, you don't know my situation, you know, you know, but you don't know the suffering I've been through. You don't know what my parents were like. You don't know what my husband or wife is like. You don't know what my kids are like. You don't, you don't know what my, my boss is like. You don't, you don't know what my, my home life was like or what my school life is like. And, and, and you're probably right, I don't. I probably cannot relate on that level. Right, but consider the words of the Apostle Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Look at, look at what Peter is telling. Now, you need to understand that when Peter is writing this letter to the churches in, in the region around Jerusalem um, and, and Antioch, right, he's writing to a church that is under severe persecution, both from the Roman world and from the Jewish world. So his audience, as he's writing this letter, are people that are being beaten down for the cause of Christ. They are in the midst of suffering. Now look at what Peter says to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See where Peter's starting there? He's not starting with their circumstances. He's starting with what God has done for them. Right? He's reminding them, remember who you are. Remember what God has done. Then look at what he says. To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's like, look, God is keeping you guys. Rejoice in this. Look at what God has done. And look at what he says in verse 6. In this you what? Rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. By the way, let me just say this. Peter is speaking very lightly there. <laughs> they were being killed. Right? So he's, he's, he's basically saying, hey, in light of Christ, losing your life is nothing. To rejoice in what Christ has done for you, surrendering your life for the cause of the gospel, is nothing. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trials and suffering, as you rejoice in them, actually produce a deeper confidence and abiding in Jesus. And it causes the people of God to rejoice, not wallow, not to waver, but to rejoice. Right? Now, like how? How, how can that be? Right? Well, one, when you're in the midst of trial and you can't fix anything on your own, what is your natural inclination? To gaze upon God. Right? When you are helpless and needy is when you as a selfish, self-centered human being tend to start actually looking outside yourself and looking to God like you're supposed to. Now, not only that, as you realize your need for God, you will worship Him and you will rejoice in Him all the more. Meaning that trials and suffering are actually in God's design to draw you closer to Him and therefore, therefore bring more encouragement to you by knowing who you are in Christ. That no matter your situation, right, Paul's call here in verse 16 is to gaze upon God and what He has done and that will produce thankfulness leading to worship. Not to dwell on your circumstances, but to dwell on him and what he's done. Really, in the same way that we saw Isaiah and the sons of Korah do the very same thing when both were in the midst of terrible situations for the nation of Israel. They rest and long for the presence of God. Now, so if we're seeking out to live in the presence of God and enjoy him, right, we've got command number one, rejoice always. Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. So consistent, persistent prayer is a command of those living in the presence of Jesus, right? That's the command that, that Paul lays down here. It, it indicates dependence and reminds us that we need him, right? You're going to notice a theme here, that over and over again, the things that Paul is going to call you to do is to deny yourself and trust in God. You're going to see that as a consistent theme here throughout these verses, right? But I would say this, if I were to take a poll in here right now, I bet most people would say like, uh, my prayer life's not where it needs to be because I've been a Christian long enough to know that that's l the prayer request of almost every Christian. Oh, I pray, but I don't pray enough. Right? And we will probably all be saying that because most of us probably are not praying without ceasing. And so I was, again, one of the things I was trying to do is I was reading through the text this week, I was like, well, why, why? Why do we not rejoice? Why don't we pray without ceasing? What tends to, to lead to these things? So go with me to Luke chapter 11. Because I think many of us struggle to pray just in general, much less consistently, uh, because we have a faulty understanding of who God is as Father. We have, a, we have a poor kind of understanding of who our dad is. So read Luke 11 with me, and, and if you if you if you've turned over in your Bible, you'll see the heading at the top there of Luke 11 is the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to read that part. We're going to scroll down a little bit, and we're going to start in verse 9. And look at what Jesus says when he's referring to the need to petition to God our requests. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I think that many of us refuse to pray 
and request things of God or at least do it consistently, especially even in like the most mundane things. One, because we are pretty self-sufficient and we believe in our own power, but two, we don't believe that God really wants to be that good. We don't view God as the good dad who doesn't want to give the scorpion instead of the egg, who doesn't want to give the serpent instead of the fish. Right? I remember my, my own dad one time, like he was talking about a difficulty he was facing at work. This was you know, about five or six years ago, and I said, Dad, have you prayed about it? And he's like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to bother God about this. This isn't that big of a deal. And, and my heart kind of like just like deflated in that moment because what my dad was communicating is, is ah, God's not that concerned about this situation. And everything that Jesus is saying here right now is, listen up, God cares. He cares. He cares that you have cancer. He cares that your marriage is a wreck. He cares that the family's fighting and can't get along. He cares, Kevin, that you're getting on a plane tomorrow and you don't want to do that. <laughs> he cares. And he wants you to come to him and ask him. Now, I may ask for something I want and not need. There's, there is a difference. But that God will meet us in our need because he's a good dad. Because he loves us. That he takes pride in spoiling us. That he, he takes great joy in giving good things to his children. We struggle because we forget who we are and who God is. And that is why we struggle to pray. You are needy and God is reliable and good. So how can I practically encourage myself to pray more? Got a few thoughts for you. Let's start by, the, by doing this. Pray and ask for a desire to be given to you to pray more, to seek him out. I can promise you this. I have never in my life prayed that prayer and not had it answered. Not once. Not once in my life have I ever prayed for God to draw me nearer to him and to desire him more and it not be answered. It may not have always been answered in the exact way I wanted it to be answered, but never once in my life can I stand here before you and honestly say God did not answer that prayer. He didn't show up. I prayed for him in his presence to be made manifest before me and he didn't show. Not once. And, and here's the thing, right? Some of you are like, I'm struggling right now. I don't, I don't think I can do this. Read the Psalms. You can be honest with God. If you're ticked off at him, tell him. David did. And David was called a man after God's own heart. Right? He's just like, you know, Dad, I am furious with you right now. Why won't you move? Why are my enemies formed against me? How long must I stay in this state? He cries out to God, and God meets him. Every time you see God meets him, because that is what he does. So number one, ask for God to give you a desire as you pray to him. Number two, rehearse and preach to yourself your need for God's intervention. Even in the simple and mundane things. Right? The way that we frequently remind you here to rehearse and preach the gospel to yourself, this is what I'm telling you to do. Rehearse and preach the gospel to yourself. You are far more messed up than you think you are and you are far more needy than you think you are and God is far more able than you think he is. That is our God. Number three, don't just center your prayer around requests for family, friends, and acquaintances, or yourself, but center it around asking God to move you in ways that you might serve others and be a blessing to others. And in that, you will recognize your insufficiency to move in those people's lives and yet God will use you anyway.
and the Lord will begin to work in you and display to you the power of the Spirit as it indwells within you. So as we're experiencing the presence of God, we've got a command to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing. Then we come to number three, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now this is a little bit of a repeat of, of verse 16, but it is slightly different in one way. And here's what I mean. When he says all circumstances there, he's talking very broad or without limits, that there's, no, there's nothing that you shouldn't be giving thanks for. So, so not only are we to rejoice, but we're actually to be thankful for all that God puts us through. And, and some of us are like, well, how is that possible? And you know, how is it possible to be thankful in, in terrible circumstances? Go with me to Acts chapter 5. This is, in all honesty, probably uh, my personal favorite moment in the, in the book of Acts. It's a long story, but I'm going to read it all to you because it's so good. Okay, starting in, in verse 27, Acts chapter 5. You're going to see true love for God on display here in the midst of circumstances that none of us would want to be in. And not only that, but rejoicing and thankfulness that they're put in this situation. It's mind-boggling, right? Read it with me. Starting in verse 27. And when they had brought them, now this is referring to uh, Peter and John. And they've been arrested, okay, for, for, for sharing the gospel, okay. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Because it was. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I love that, right? It's like, sorry, I mean, tell us whatever you want. We're not going to listen to you. <laughs> we don't care that you're the highest counsel <laughs> of, the, of the Jewish religion. We, we're going to listen to God, not to you. Love that. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So I love it, right? They're like, don't talk about him. And what do they do? They preach the gospel. Right? I love it. They're like, sorry. I mean, we're witnesses to it. We saw it. We're not going to stop talking about it. This is, this is what happened. We actually saw it. We saw the resurrection. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the Sanhedrin's furious. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Okay. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then, I love this, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
they rejoiced and gave thanks that they were put to shame and beaten for the sake of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? Right? Most of us are afraid to mention Jesus as we get coffee with somebody. These guys were beaten and put to shame because they were witnesses to the beauty of what God has done. Guys, let me remind you of something. So are you. You've seen what God's done in your life. You've seen what God has done in other people's lives. I've seen God pull people out of alcoholism. I've seen him pull people out of drug addiction. I've seen him heal marriages. I've seen him draw people out of the pits of depression. This is what God does, right? That is what you're witnesses to. You are witnesses to that work, the work of God, the felt presence of God in our lives. So why were the apostles able, in the midst of extreme persecution, to do this when most of us can't even talk about Jesus at Starbucks? It's because of this. They had complete trust in God's will, and they knew that his will was for their good. All right, some of you guys know I'm going to share this story because I think it fits. Some of you guys know that R.C. Sproul passed away this past week, right? Great teacher, theologian. I'm, I'm very thankful for his ministry. Um, had a beautiful ability to speak clearly and eloquently the most difficult um, theological concepts and put them in very, very easily understood terms. It's a, it's a gift. There are very, very few men that have that, that kind of gift, and, and he was very gifted in that way. Whether you agreed with all of his theological conclusions or not, he was a gift to the church. And one of my, you know, um, I never had the, the, the pleasure of seeing him live at a conference, but I got to watch a few of them online, and, I, and, and one in particular always sticks out to me. Um, he, he had this, this great personality that I was very endeared towards because, you know, he would just crack jokes and, 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 and do things while sharing deep theological truths. And one particular conference he was at, they were doing a panel, and they asked Dr. Sproul, they said, um, basically, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fumbling through the question here, but they, they asked him, you know, how can it be that God can deal so harshly with the human race after Adam and Eve have sinned? And, you know, Dr. Sproul kind of makes a joke. He says, didn't we kind of just answer this question, you know, just a second ago? And, and uh, the people are like, yeah, but this is a little different. This is a little nuanced. And he goes, so how, how can it be that God is so mean to deal with humans so harshly once sins entered the world? And he sits there and pauses for a second. And then he looks, and, and this is one of those, like, fascinating moments because it's funny and it's also completely serious at the same time. He looks at the crowd because they're the ones that sent the question in. And he says, what is wrong with you people? And a few people start giggling, and he's like, I'm not trying to be funny. He says, what is wrong with you? He's like, this is the problem with the church. You don't understand who God is and who you are. You don't get to dictate whether God is being good in this situation or not. Do you realize the level of rebellion that took place when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden? The level of pure rejection and treason that occurred in that moment. God didn't deal with them harshly. He showed loving kindness towards them and lavished grace upon them by not ending their existence on the spot. That God is patient and long-suffering that God would have been well within his rights in that moment to destroy the human race. That the problem that many of us go through when we're in the midst of suffering or we don't like the circumstances that we're in is we do not have a proper orientation towards God. I'm going to give you a simple equation right now. Even... even I can handle this, right? You can write this down if you're taking notes. I want you to write down God 
and then I want you to write the greater than sign, and then I want you to write me. If you can remember that, life will be far easier for you. God is smarter than you. He's more loving than you. He is more intelligent than you. He is all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He is bigger and better than you are. By the way, that is good news. It means that when you think something is out of whack or wrong, it might be, and God might know that as well, and he has a purpose in the midst of it, but it also might mean you are wrong. I hate to break it to you. Right? Your assessment of your situation or someone else's may not always be right. If you have a proper understanding and orientation towards who God is and who you are in light of him, you will be more joyful and you will be more thankful because your very existence is a gift from God. The fact that you are breathing right now is evidence of God's grace towards you. Think about that. Number four. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit, right? Quench means to extinguish, put out a fire, okay? So what does this mean, and am I doing it, right? That's always the question, right? As we're reading through these things, am, am I following this thing, am I doing it? All right, let's, let's start with this, right? Uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, because I want, I, want, I want you to understand that there, there are differences here between grieving the spirit and quenching the spirit, Right, these are the kind of the two examples that Paul uses, right? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul's making this statement. It's like, if you are a disciple or a follower of Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And you are able to both quench it and you are able to grieve it. Now, grieving is the Holy Spirit's emotional response to your actions. Quenching is resisting the Holy Spirit's leading or guidance. Now, they are intertwined. But there is a difference between the two. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, the role of the Holy Spirit is to lead and help us grow in godliness. And you can, in your stubbornness and selfishness, quench or extinguish the leading of the Spirit in your life. You are able to do that. That there is a a role in us that can cause this to happen at times. right? But that the role of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us. To make us more like Jesus, meaning if the Spirit's leading you to do something, there's a reason for it. I love what the great Puritan John Owen says about sanctification. Sanctification is an immediate work of the Spirit of God on the soul of believers, purifying and cleansing of their natures from the pollution and uncleanliness of sin renewing them in them the image of God and thereby enabling them from a spiritual and a, hab- and a habitual principle of grace to yield obedience unto God according unto the tenor and terms of the new covenant by virtue of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Meaning, all right, let me translate that for you if you struggle with Puritan understanding. The Holy Spirit is trying to cleanse, purify, and renew your mind to joy and obedience to God. That is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in you. As As the Holy Spirit was given both as a seal of your salvation, but also as a helper, as you walk out the remainder of your days in obedience to Christ. And so, how do we quench the Spirit, right? Let me give you a few ways. This might be some practical ways, right? James 1.22, right? Famous passage, right? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, so here's one way. Like, am I quenching the Spirit? How, how can I know? Well, do you know the word of God and then reject it? Yes. If you are doing that, you are quenching the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to deny the word of God. I can promise you that. Now, number two, if you find yourself refusing to worship God in all circumstances, 
and putting him in his proper place as creator. You have that in, improper hierarchy. It's an indication that you're quenching the spirit. Number three, if your life is centered around self-seeking pleasures and glory, right, one of the primary ways that I can frequently tell if somebody is walking with the Lord strongly or not is if they're making plans for their life and they're not praying about them and they're not inviting other people into that decision-making process. Pretty quickly, it's obvious, right, that you are operating under your own power and your own mind. Number four, prideful wanderings. And what I mean by this is, is that your, your, your pride leads to unrepentance of sin. That, you don't just, that you're not just sinning at times and then repenting, but you're actually refusing to repent of it because of your pride. And that can either manifest itself in the way that you're like, oh, I can fix this and I can clean myself up, or God's wrong on this one and I can do what I want. And Paul shows us to enjoy Christ, to enjoy the presence of God, is to lean into him and trust his leading according to the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would trust the leading of the Spirit, not quench it. Let's move on to number five, verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. This is going to be a quick one. What is prophecy? It's either future revelation that God is giving us of something that's going to happen in the future, or most frequently, as you see throughout the scripture, is the reiteration or proclamation of something God has commanded or said. So, I'm going to make this really simple to you. Verse 20, here is what Paul is saying. Love God's word and trust it is good and for you. This book is for your good. It is God's grace towards us. It is God's presence and his word manifested before us so that we might know him and enjoy him and love him. Number six and number seven are in verse 21. Let's look at that. But test everything and hold fast what is good, right? So he's giving two different commands there, right? Test, right, which means to examine what is good and evil around us. And hold fast, which means to embrace wholeheartedly the things that are good. So, so here's what Paul's saying in verse 21. And it's actually a great fear of mine. I, I see it frequently. I, I think some of it is in our church just because we are a younger church in general. But I think some of it's just the, the age that we live in. Um, I have a great fear that we as men and women of God lack discernment that we lack a discerning spirit about the things of God and what is of God and what is not of God. And, and what I mean by that is we tend to focus more on emotion rather than truth. Um, we tend to have poor biblical hermeneutics and we're spiritually immature. Uh, throw up Hebrews chapter five for me because I think this is true of the church at large especially in America at least. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. It's basically calling them babies, by the way, in case you can't tell. Because babies eventually move to solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There is a issue, and some of it's rooted in our desire to be loving and accepting, and I think it comes from a good place, but there is an issue within the church at large that we are too quick to accept something without testing whether it is good or evil. And, it's, and it's a, it's a, it really is a great fear of mine, guys. I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say this. Um, many of you guys will come to me about a book you're reading or music you're listening to or other pastors and preachers that you're listening to, and I, I at times fear it. Not because I have all the answers, 
Not because I've cornered the market on what is right, but because it is very easy to me very quickly when I start reading or listening to some of that stuff to see how unbiblical it is very quickly. Let me, let me give you an example. I'm, I'm going to call something out right now by name. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it. The most popular book in the last two years in the Christian world was a book called Jesus Calling. Some of you guys probably have that book in this room right now. Now, listen. Here, here is my problem with that book, right? Because if you read the beginning of that book, right, Sarah Young says, and she's a wonderful sister in Christ, okay? So let me start there. I'm not, not bashing her. Okay, I, want, I want to be clear here, right? We're, we're attempting to be charitable, but I want to tell you why discernment is important. She'll begin that book by saying that she has learned to hear from God by reading Scripture. And that this, there was kind of this process for her where she would hear the word of God as she was meditating or praying, and she would write down what God tells her, and then she would test it against Scripture. And then she wrote this book that was kind of designed to be a devotional to help you do the same. Here, here is my great problem with this book, because you, you can read it and you say, well, there's nothing in there that would contradict Scripture and things that she says. And I've, I've read through it. From what I can tell, there's not. But here is the primary problem with just the premise of the book in general. She is teaching and thereby relaying to you that the best way to experience God is by hearing his voice saying specific things to you. And that God will always communicate to you in your mind as you meditate. And that you can then prayer journal or prayer walk these things out and hear God speak to you. Now, let me tell you what the problem with that is. One, that is not the way that God primarily communicates to us anymore. The primary way that God communicates to you is how? Here, the scripture. It's the prophecy given and revealed to you. Number two, you may be hearing the voice of God as you do this you may also be hearing a demon masquerading with just enough truth twisted to confuse you and lead you astray. There, are, there is such a lack of discernment within the church that I am not confident that many of you could do this and handle it properly. Guys, let me tell you something. I, 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 I rarely share this story, but I'm going to share it with you because it, it fits here. How many of you guys have ever experienced or seen someone who is under some sort of demonic control? Four or five of you. Literally the scariest and weirdest situation I've ever been involved in. Okay, happened in downtown Gainesville outside of Relish. Okay. You don't want to be inviting demons to be communicating to you. Call me crazy? Probably not a great idea. And you may be allowing this by practicing what is taught in that book. Lastly, and this is probably one of my, 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 my biggest issues with this. If you read the scriptures, did God visit every single person in the nation of Israel? and speak to them personally? No. It's not how God operates. He communicates to specific people at specific times, men and women, and reveals his truth to them and then has it later recorded and preserved in his word. Meaning, God may not even speak to you and it can create in you a great spirit of distrust in God and belief in him if someone is telling you that this is the best way to communicate and grow and then you don't experience that same thing that someone else does. It's dangerous. I cannot flat out say, hey, this book is heretical, but I can flat out say it's dangerous and I don't like it. And I think if we were more discerning, we would see things like that. We would see preaching that is unbiblical. We would, we would hear music that does not glorify and honor God. And we would look at it and we would quickly say, something's off. Ask Jackie. 
like, when Jackie hears a song or something like that, and she, and Jackie's pretty discerning, but she sends it immediately to me, and she knows, like, but just my, she'll laugh. She'll look at my face, and I'll just be like, mm, I, don't, I don't like that. Something's weird. Right? And I may not even, like, fully kind of process through what's going on, but the spirit of discernment in me says, uh-uh, something's off here, and this does not bring glory and honor to God. We need to test it. And so what Paul is saying here is like, listen, guys, be more discerning. Don't just accept something. Don't just assume something's good because they come from a church or claim to be a follower of Jesus. Hitler claimed to be a follower of Jesus. I think if we tested him, probably would find out pretty quickly that's not the case. So how can you become more discerning? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Pray. Ask for discernment. Believe it or not, God wants you to be discerning. Shocking, I know. But God, God wants you to be a mature disciple of Jesus. And then lastly, be in community that loves God, his word, and the gospel. So that if you are unsure about something, you can get godly counsel from men and women who you trust and know love God around you. Number eight, verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. That word abstain means to shun. Right, so for those of you that are Office fans like myself, I remember when Dwight Schrute shunned Andy Bernard. Right, he refused to accept his existence. Right, refused to have fellowship with him. He refused to talk to him, although Dwight unshunned him and then would reshun him because he didn't understand the process. Right, but if we look at Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 29 and 30 with me. Right, this, is, this is what is being taught here. This is the words of Christ. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So to abstain from evil, to shun evil, is to treat sin and evil seriously the way that God tells us to here in the Serpent on the Mount. Now remember, this is Jesus saying this, the very man who died for the forgiveness of your sins, the very man who went to the cross to die as a propitiation for your sin is also the same one that tells you, take sin seriously and put it to death. Because if you are truly seeking the presence of God in your life, you will abhor sin and put it to death. And God will help you to do so. So, some of you came here this morning and now you're thinking, Kevin has given me a list of things I have to do and this list is exhausting and I can't keep it. Thank you for the lack of encouragement, Kevin. Thank you. Really appreciate it. How will I ever experience the presence of God? Because if it is up to me to do these eight things, I'm going to fail before I even get up from my chair to take communion here in a minute. It's true. You, you, you likely will. And yet, God's word is true. He is very much demanding and commanding of us that we would seek and do these things so that we will be brought to a place of greater joy in Christ. These verses bring great clarity and hope to those of us who know and have experienced the presence of God and want to continue in godliness. And yet, verses 23 and 24 will reorient you and remind you that it is all about God and what he's done. All right, look at this with me. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful 
he will surely do it. Look at the language there. May the God of peace himself, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. As we are sanctified, we're sanctified in three planes of life, right? In the past, the present, and the future, right? In the past, right, we're cleansed of sin, declared righteous by the blood and death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the presence, we are working out our sin and moving from sinfulness to holiness in our flesh by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we sit here and look at our lives and think, man, I don't meet the standard. This is never going to happen. We, we hope in future glory because the promises of the Father to us in Christ. Ultimately, your sanctification, although it is active, and you play a role in participating, it is ultimately residing on who? God. Isn't that beautiful? That God promises as he calls us into his presence and demands that we live a certain way, he promises at the same time to see us through. He says, rejoice always. I'm going to help you rejoice always. I'm going to lead you into times of trials so that you might learn to rejoice. Pray without ceasing. I'm going to bring you into seasons where you must depend on me so you grow in prayer. In everything, give thanks. I'm going to bring you low, and then I'm going to remind you of who I am so that you will give thanks. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. I'm going to surround you with my word and with people who love me so that you might grow in maturity and discernment. Abstain from every form of evil. I'm going to help you put sin to death. Do not despise prophecy. I'm going to increase your love for God's word. And I'm going to, every time you read it, I'm going to show you something and encourage you in it. Do not quench the Spirit. You can't extinguish the Holy Spirit. Not fully, anyway. Jesus is our great hope and sanctification. God's promise to us is that He will see you now how does this work how can I have responsibility and how can God still ultimately see me through right the great conundrum of scripture the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man go with me to Isaiah 55 that's where we're going to finish today I'm going to read one verse to you this is God speaking look at verse 9 this should come as a great encouragement. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I can't fully understand and explain to you exactly how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man work out. I can't. I have some thoughts. But here's the good news. I'm not God. And so I don't have to. I know what Scripture teaches. I know that Scripture both says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that you and I should be actively living out our faith in the presence of God. And I also know that God right afterwards promises that he will see me through. And here's what I'm going to choose to do. I'm going to choose to believe that God is greater than my ability to even fully understand how that works, and I'm gonna trust him so that I might live in his presence and in his will, and I'm gonna trust in his sufficiency to see me to the end, because he is good, because he keeps his promises, because he has come and manifested that glory to us in a child laying in a manger, and that that child suffered 
under the hands of wicked men once he became a fully grown man. And he hung from the cross to pay for your sins and for mine so that we might be reconciled and forgiven to the Father. And he credited to us his righteousness and he took on our sin and paid the penalty for it. And then he rose again from the dead to display that God had put to shame the principalities and the powers of this world and that death no longer stood over us. And that by faith in Christ, we might experience new life and joy in him. The kind of life that we're reading about right here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Who doesn't want a more joyful life? Who doesn't want to know God more? Who doesn't want to put sin to death? May we ask of God to make it happen and may we believe in him as we live it out. Let's pray and ask for him to do this. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Most of all, thank you for your son. Thank you that because of Jesus, all of this is possible. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can walk in joy. Not weighed down by our circumstances, but in knowledge of who you are and what you've done. Father, forgive us when we're not living these things out. That when we are robbing ourselves of joy, your grace is sufficient for us. Father, we ask and beg that your Holy Spirit might move in us to repent of sin and trust in the gospel and live out those truths for our good and your glory. And as we take communion this morning, Lord, may we do so thankfully rejoicing in you because of what you have accomplished and done for us. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for the men and women of this church who love and know you as well. May we be marked by a, a sincere joy and walking in obedience in your presence. And I ask this all in your name. Amen.